Well, one of my favourite scriptures is Psalm 1 verse two, uh, 91 verse 2. I say of the Lord, he is my refuge and he is my fortress. My God in him will I trust. You know, God, the Bible tells us, is our refuge and he's our fortress. You know, and those things, although they sound like it, aren't actually the same thing. The refuge is a place where you run to hide, a place where you, you go to be safe, restored and refreshed. But a fortress is a place where you fight from. It's actually about military campaigns. And so sometimes the Lord comes to us as a refuge and, and sometimes he comes to us as a fortress. He's, and he's calling each one of us to embrace him in both roles. We have to learn to hold both these aspects of God's character and nature at the same time. You see, because whatever we behold of God is released in us. You know, we see that all throughout Scripture. The knowledge of him is the key to transformation. You know, God has given already, has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. 1 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And there's many, many principles, uh, references to this principle. And what we're saying is that as we worship him, we are refreshed because that's how we behold him. You know, to come in and say, oh, you know, that was good worship today. My question is, why was it good worship for you? Well, the music was good and the voices were nice and, you know, Mrs. Smith wasn't here and she's tone deaf and I have to sit behind her and that kind of, you know, that's not the whole reason. We worship because we're beholding Jesus. It isn't actually about us. I mean, of course we want to have good music, of course we want to have all those things, but the reality is the reason we worship is because it connects our spirits to his spirit. It's the same as prayer. It's through prayer and worship that we get transformed as well as reading the word. When we identify him, in him, whatever we identify in him gets released as a blessing to us. See, the reality is God is near. God is here. God knows and God cares. And so draw near to God and God will draw near to you, is what James says. And of course that's true. But if we look a little bit under the surface that really what is happening is as we draw near to God, it's not like we're, trying to, we're attracting God. Rather, we're placing ourselves in the position to be aware of the infinite nearness of God. You see, you're never far away from God. God is the ground of all being. In him we live and move and have our being. So as we deliberately draw near to God, we, are, we get awakened to an infinite sense of the nearness of God. So how do we do that? How do we draw near? Well, one thing we've already talked about, it's actually through prayer. You see, prayer is drawing near to God, that we might become aware of his infinite nearness. Prayer is the practice of growing near to God. Jesus says, believe in God and also believe in me. You know, and, I, and I've talked about this before. The God, God, God is an abstract word. God is a concept. It, it, it's a kind of an illusion. If we say God, there's almost an infinite number of things we can mean and different ideas that people have in their mind when we talk about God. It is Jesus who is the definition of God. It is Jesus who is the perfect revelation of God. It is Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, is the icon of the invisible God. 
So the, so the Bible points us to Jesus, and it's Jesus alone who perfectly reveals God. Using that wonderful little statement from Brian Zahn, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. Now we come to John 14, and uh, it's, it's the upper room discourse where Jesus on the, it's the last night, it's called the Last Supper, where Jesus is going to have the last time of his disciples, the last time before his suffering. And during the evening, at one point, Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father, and that'll be enough, we'll be okay. And Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, who, whoever's seen me has seen the Father, Philip, how can you say, show me the Father? I've been showing you the Father for as long as I've been, you've known me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And those few words that Jesus speaks is really the, one of the climactic moments in the Gospel of John. Because, you see, remember I've talked about it over the last month or two. John's main agenda is to reveal to us that to encounter Christ is to encounter God. To know Jesus is to know God. To understand Jesus is to understand what God is like. We begin with that wonderful poetic prologue of John's. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and apart from him, nothing was made. And then as he's talking about it, in the middle of it, he says this this amazing statement. The Word became flesh. The Word was made a human being. The Word came into the world of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he finally finishes this amazing piece of scripture by saying, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is near the Father's heart. He has made him known. An incredible piece of scripture. That's the gospel. That's the whole gospel right there. Jesus came to make God known. So back in John 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. In other words, Jesus is saying, Listen, where where I abide, where the Father abides, there's plenty of room for everyone. And in his life and death and resurrection, Jesus leads us to that house, to the Father's house. You see, Jesus is gathering all of humanity into the Father's house. And he says, listen, don't worry, there's plenty of room for all of us. You don't have to worry about the Father's house. It's not going to be too crowded. It's not going to be like you're going to get there, knock on the door, and they're going over and say, sorry, no room tonight. Jesus says, listen, there's plenty of room in the Father's house. And so on this Father's Day, I want to take, talk about our journey to the Father's house. You see, when Jesus says, I am the way in this passage, he's talking about, he's saying, I'm the way to the Father. I'm the way to the Father's house. And in that house, there's plenty of room, room for everyone. All you need to know is how to get there. And Jesus says, listen to his disciples, you know how to get there. Thomas pipes up and says, no, we don't. We don't know the way. Jesus says, yes, you do. I am the way. I am the way. Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the way to the Father's house. And you know what? The Father's house, you know what kind of house it is? It's the house of love. You see, every human being has to choose which house they're going to live in. 
Which house are they going to live in? You see, there are two houses in reality in the world, the house of fear and the house of love. And through life's journey, each one of us has to make choices of where we're going to live. And especially in times of crisis, sometimes it can be daily, even hourly, we have to make a choice. Are we going to live in the house of fear or are we going to live in the Father's house, which is a house of love? In 1410, a Russian monk named Andrei Rubilov created one of the world's most famous icons. It's now in a museum in Moscow. And this icon has two titles. It's known as either the Hospitality of Abraham, but it's also called the Holy Trinity. Because you see, Rubilov was trying to communicate two themes here. See, on one level he says, this is a depiction of the angels who have come and dined with Abraham under the oaks of Mombury at Hembron. But he says, listen, it's also a picture of the Holy Trinity. And I just love it. I actually had it at my back on my, um, in my computer. In, in his book the, um, on icons called the Beauty, Behold the Beauty of the Lord, the writer says that it's called, he calls it the house of love. The house of love. And, and he says that Rubilov created this um, icon during a time of incredible political unrest in Russia, <laughs> which are probably not unusual. But he had this time of rest and strife going on in Russia. And he wanted his fellow monks not to go in the direction of fear and hate and of reaction. He wanted them to keep their hearts centered on God. And so he creates this icon. Because then when you look at it, if you notice, the way it's been done, you actually, as you stand in front of it, you're invited into the table. You're invited to being that part of it. And you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity right there. But as you look at the icon, it places you in part of that table. It's it's really, it's a gentle invitation to enter into the life of endless reciprocal love that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The question for you is this, will you accept the invitation? You see, because we need to say, how can we live in, in the li- our lives in the midst of a, of a world that is marked by fear and hatred and anger and often violence and not be destroyed by it, or at least not let it get on to us? And the answer is simply this. The answer is Jesus. See, Jesus is a way out of the house of fear with its hate and and often its violence into the Father's house that is the house of love. Because you see, to live in this world, in this fallen, broken world system, that is a house of hate. And it's full of hate and violence. To live in the world while not belonging to this world, really, this summarizes the spiritual life. That's what the spiritual life is all about. When we say a spiritual life, what we're really meaning is a life that is not lived in the house of fear with its hate and its violence, but living a life that is an alternative to that, which is the Father's house. And Jesus is the way to that. You see, that's the true house that you were created to belong to. Our true house is not a house of of fear where there's the power of hatred and violence rule. That's the house of love where God lives. And Jesus says to each one of us, I want to take you there. I'll be the way. I'll lead you there. And it's through the spiritual life, as we position ourselves more and more in the presence of Jesus, that we gradually move, that we move from that place of house of fear to the house of love, to the Father's house. See, that's the goal of spiritual formation. 
The goal of spiritual formation is not to try to make you a nice, better person. It's to transform you into the image of Jesus, which makes you a nice and better person. That's the goal of spiritual formation. And it will eventually, our lives will be settled in the house of love, settled in the life of experiencing the love of the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit. See, wars, big and small, anger, verbal abuse, these things constantly break out in the house of fear. Arguments and, and breakdowns of relationships come out of the house of fear. There's never enough in the house of fear. People live in the house of fear with a sense of scarcity. And so the inhabitants of the house of fear have to, this, this, to fight among themselves to, to get their own, to make sure that they're going to live okay. In the house of fear, every member is viewed as a, comp- a competitor and has to be beaten. And that's where we often fall into a trap, where we, we fall into this idea that life is a game, that it's a competitive game. And if you think you've got to live every t- moment competitive against other people, that's an indication that you're still drawing from the house of fear. You see, the house of fear is filled with hate and violence, and friendships is mostly just alliances. Satan is the instigator and accusation. He rules the house of fear. And so if the house of love is the father's house, the house of fear is the devil's house. And the house of fear, unfortunately, is where the world history has been mostly played out. But there is an alternative. See, the thing about the house of fear is it's built totally on lies. It's all one big lie. The house of fear is false. It's not true. It's not the ultimate reality. It's a pernicious lie given to us by the father of the lies. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the one who is truth. He's the one who's truth. But we've been sold this, this, this bill of, of lies. And the house of fear exists because all his captives don't know. They don't know the greatest truth of all. And what's the greatest truth of all? God is love. See, the world, the universe is not benign, but God is love. Cruel cruel vulgarities bound, but God is love. Harms are hidden among us, but God is love. There can be fear and anger and uncertainty, but God is love. And because of that, all shall be well. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. And so when Jesus says there's plenty of room in the Father's house, and Jesus says, I've, I've prepared a place for you in the Father's house, it's an invitation to each one of us to make a de- definitive break and a place to live in a new place, in the house of the Father's love. To live in that place where we make decisions that love and hope and joy are going to be the things that abound in our hearts. So how do we get to the Father's house? How do we get to this Father's house of love? Well, that was Thomas's question. How do we get there? Jesus said, listen, you know the way. He made it very clear. I am the way. It's where we have to choose. We choose to get to live in the Father's house by choosing to live a life of following Jesus. You know, following Jesus is the way. 
And it's not something that occurs through a once upon a time prayer. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is the way and we have to choose every single day, every single hour, every, to follow him. Now listen, we, we, we're not always going to get it right. We, we need to make, make course corrections because, you know, we do get off course. But we've got to come back on and keep going. Too many of us make, make a mistake or get something wrong and we decide that we've, we've um, um, failed ourselves, that we've, uh, we're out. And that's a, one of the biggest lies of the enemy. When we make an error, we bring it back on. You see, listen, following Jesus, most of us don't make us follow a straight course, a straight line. We zig and zag. So we just need to keep zigging and we just need to keep zagging and keep following Jesus. Because that's what he's calling us to do, to come into the Father's house through that. You know, the press have labelled this winter the winter of discontent because of everything that's been going on. But we can determine, because we live in the Father's house, that we are not going to partner with that. We can determine that we're going to live in the house of the Father's love. And that when we interact with those around us, we're going to make choices that speak of love, that speak of hope, that speak of joy, and speak of encouragement. It's our, it's our opportunity to experience the Father's house and to partner with the Holy Spirit so others may encounter the Father's house. I want to finish this morning by, by telling you a, a remarkable story. It's about a man who followed Jesus, a man who left the house of fear when almost nobody else would. Everybody he knew almost stayed in the house of fear, but he left. He left the house of fear and he followed Jesus to the house of love. And, and following Jesus to the house of love cost him his life. But now his life is an eternal witness to Jesus in the way of love. His name is Franz Jagerstata. It's a photo of him there. Franz Jagerstata was an Austrian farmer during World War II. In his youth, he was a really wild guy. He got into all sorts of fights. He got into the trouble with the police. He chased women. He was a hard-drinking, hard-fighting man. And then he met Franzika, and he was captivated by her. And they were married. Now, she was a very devout Christian girl, and he changed quite dramatically after his marriage. And he became incredibly serious about his Christian faith. In fact, he became known as the guy that loved the Bible. And he spent hours just sitting, reading the scriptures. He became a pillar in the church. He was always there in the church, serving in some capacity. He was totally transformed. Now, at this time, Austria was part of the Third Reich. And France lived in a, in a small village in Austria during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. And he saw it and he lived through it. And the people around him were celebrating. I mean, Hitler, Hitler was going to return Germany to its greatness. And, and he was going to be the answer to all the social problems, to the inflation, to everything that was going on. And so people were, were totally on board. They were so excited. But not France. France was deeply concerned. He actually wrote one time, people just don't recognise evil when they see it. And, uh, you know, so often when, when evil gets masked and patriotism and, and even religion, it can easily be people miss, fail to recognise it. And virtually no one in his village recognised what was happening. And on January the 9th, 1938, France had a dream, a prophetic dream that changed his life. He saw this beautiful train and it, and it was uh, going around the mountain. 
and, and <clears throat> excuse me, people were, were all wanting to get on this train. It was so glorious. There were adults and there were children and, and everybody was clamouring to be on this beautiful train. And as he was watching, he thought, wow, this is so fantastic. And suddenly a voice spoke and he said, this train is going to hell. And he, and he was woken up, he was shaken. He was deeply troubled by his dream and he, he began to pray about it and he realised that the train was actually Nazism. And so he began to sound a warning. He said that Nazism was satanic and uh, it was not good. It was all demonic. And you can imagine how unpopular that made him. He was ostracised as friends distanced themselves from him. People made fun of him. They didn't want to be around him. And eventually Franz made up his mind that he would not serve in the military. He did the basic military training earlier on, but he made the decision if he was caught up, he wouldn't fight. And uh, initially he wasn't called up because they obviously needed farmers to provide crops and everything, and so he'd gone back to his farm after his training. But finally the telegram arrived, and he was called up to German military. He made up his mind, as I said, he wasn't going to do that. He spoke to his pastor and, his, and talked about the evil, and the pastor said, listen, don't worry about it. Come on. We're serving the nation. It's really for a greater good. It's okay. And so all the church leaders tried to talk him out of it. They told him he would have the church's blessings and that he would be serving God by serving his country. But, but he refused. They said, but what about your family? He had three gorgeous little daughters. Imagine the shame if you don't go and serve. Because if you don't go and serve, you'll be punished. What about your children? He's going to look after them. Do the right thing and serve your nation. It's a godly thing to do. But Franz made up his mind, and so when he was called to duty in March 1943, he reported it. And he got there. And when the new, new soldiers arrived, the new conscripts arrived, one of the first things they had to do was give a personal oath of loyalty to Adolf Hitler. And so these new soldiers would write, raise their right hand and they repeated an oath pledging personal allegiance to Hitler. And there stood Franz Jagerstarter and he didn't raise his hand. He said, I can't make this oath. I can't give my allegiance to anyone but Jesus. And of course he was immediately arrested. He spent five months in prison, and um, people came with him. They were able to visit him. They pleaded with him, just sign this document, and you'll go free. Your family will be happy. Everything will be okay. Even if you don't believe it in your heart, Franz, sign it. It'll be okay. But he refused. On the August 9th, 1943, the Nazi government beheaded him. He was faithful to Jesus, he believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And he followed Jesus into the house of love, into the Father's house of love. He wasn't going to live in the house of fear any longer, dominated by hate and violence. Franz Jagerstarter joined the company of the martyrs spoken of in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They overcome the beast by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives, even in the death. The, the, the story of Franz Jagerstarter was barely known for the next 20, 30 years until in 1964 a biography was published of him. And then in 1968, Thomas Merton, a very famous Christian, wrote about him. Interestingly enough, in 1997, the, Roman, uh, the German government nullified his death sentence, which was <laughs> but it was at least an acknowledgement that they were, he was right and they were wrong. And uh, if you're interested, there's been a couple of good films made of it. A well-known movie called A Hidden Life is, uh, I think it's on Disney at the moment. But it's three hours long, so it takes a significant amount of commitment to watch it, but it's really worth it. But on YouTube, there's also another, a 30-minute one called uh, uh, 
uh, what's it called? Uh, Franz Jagerstarter, A Man of Conscience, and that's um, narrated by Martin Sheen. And uh, so it's a really good story. There's an icon that's been made celebrating his life. If you see it, see how he's holding his Bible, which he loves so much because it's such a part of his life. You see there the little Nazi demon actually covering his face, fleeing from France because he's lived in fear of the power that France had. It's a great little little uh, icon. See, France found his strength in and through the message of Jesus. He wrote one last letter to his wife a few days before they were killed. That's his wife here when she was 95, 96 in the year 2009. That's his three little girls as little girls, and then that's him growing up. This is what he wrote. Dearest wife, I thank you for once again from the bottom of my heart for everything. You have done for me in my lifetime and all that I love you have brought to me. Let us hope to meet again soon in heaven. Learn to become a family, loving one another and forgiving whatever may come. Also ask in our town whom I have offended to forgive me too. If one harbours no thought of vengeance against others and can forgive everyone, that person will at last be at peace in their heart. Let us pray to God that a real and lasting peace may soon depend upon this world. Now, my dear children, when your mother reads you this letter, your father will already be dead. I would have gladly come to you, but Heavenly Father wanted it otherwise. Be well and pray for your father. Know that I am completely bound and in a union with the Lord. I am completely bound and in a union with the Lord. Each one of us are called to be part of the Jesus way as he leads us to the Father's house. I mentioned the movie, The Hidden Life, and that's the name of it is from a quote by George Eliot, who wrote this, The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistorical acts, meaning that the world... The good in the world is partly dependent on acts that were never get written down in history. You know, we have this idea that you have to be famous and mighty to change history. But I tell you, when we stand before the throne of glory, you're going to be amazed at the number of unknown people who actually changed eternity. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on historic, unhistorical acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is halfway owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. See, those are the ones who found their way to the Father's house. May we be among their numbers. Amen. Can I have the worship team up? Father, I thank you for the invitation to the Father's house, to the house of love.